Let's turn to the book of Colossians, if you will. Colossians chapter 1. We're beginning a new series of studies today in the book of Colossians. <coughs> and I'm, I'm really thankful uh, that this is the direction that the Lord is taking us. I'll explain why in just a moment. But to get right into it, <coughs> let me read the first two verses. And you'll notice that's really all we're going to look at today. Except for about uh, 50 other passages of scripture, so we'll, uh, we'll get to that. This is the introduction to our study in Colossians. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is always a wonderful and exciting time when the church begins a new series of studies, especially in a single book of the scriptures, in this case, the epistle of Paul to the Colossians. But you might be wondering why. Why, after spending the previous month focused entirely on prophetic themes and issues, why the book of Colossians? Well, in a nutshell, the reason must be that the days and the times in which we live are serious and they're sobering and they're even dangerous times, especially for the body of Christ, the church. A lot of old spiritual, mystical, religious, and philosophical errors are, are being paraded in much newer terms and titles and that on all sides, especially in what I call the visible church. Now, I've used this term before, so many of you know what I mean by the visible church. It's what the world sees as the church, whether it's ecclesiastical or evangelical or whatever. It's just what the world sees as a whole. I, I believe that there is an invisible church, and the invisible church is every true believer in Jesus Christ. Uh, so what the world oftentimes sees is not really the church. It's man's ideas of the church as they think it needs to be. So we see all of these things perverting really the gospel of Jesus Christ in the church as well as uh, taking light off of very important factors and issues in the church. I'm going to get to all of this in just a moment. But because of this, therefore, there's a need of a new examination of Paul's letter that speaks to the deceptions that are affecting the church presently. Please remember the words of Jesus to his disciples in the Olivet Discourse. It was, it was the message that the Lord gave on the Mount of Olives to his disciples before going to the cross. It was that very same week. And he said to them in, in these words in Matthew chapter 24, verses 4 and 5, he said, Take heed that no man deceive you. And I, and I emphasize the word deceive. Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. You jump down, there, there's twice mention of the word deceive. Then in verse 11 it says, And many false prophets shall arise, or shall rise, and shall deceive many. That's the third mention of the word deceive, by Jesus. And then you go down to Matthew 24, verses 23 and 24. Where Jesus says, Then if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders. A lot of people are being deceived by signs and wonders today, even in churches. 
But then he says, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Well, that's dangerous. That's, that's describing a very dangerous time that was to come. And while it is a certainty that Paul and all the other apostles believe that they were in the last days, there's no question that they were wanting to prepare the church for deceptions that were already manifesting themselves wherever the church was being planted. And, and thank the Lord for watching over his own truth through the power of his Holy Spirit. That's how that word and that truth has come to us. Been carefully watched over, but especially by those who have discerned the spirits to see if they are of God or not. The discerning of spirits is a gift, is a gift of the Holy Spirit found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We are told that we are to test every spirit to see if they're from God. That's 1 John chapter 4. These are things in the scriptures that are telling us, listen, we cannot just accept things because they're being told to us in the church. You got to check me out too. That's the point. But I thank the Lord that he watches over his own truth. And the God is not deceived. And don't forget this, God is not mocked. No matter what man tries to do with his word. I want you to consider the words of Paul to his son in the faith, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. And again, this is all foundational to our study of the book of Colossians. But Paul says to Timothy, this know also that in the last days, perilous times shall come. Now again, we know that the last days began when the, when the, when the church began, in essence. We can see that from various passages in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The mention of last days, Peter mentions it in his letters. <clears throat> but notice this, that in the last days perilous times shall come. Well, I can tell you this, if we are now in the last of the last days, perilous times have come. And you can be sure of that by what we're going to examine today. Now listen to this, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful and holy. I mean, this is like opening the newspaper or, or, or listening to the news today. How about without natural affection, verse 3? Without natural affection, that's become something of, a, of an issue in this last couple of weeks. Where you have states promoting uh, late-term abortions. And even the governor of Virginia, as I mentioned last week, even the governor of Virginia saying, listen, you know, we can even actually have the mother give birth. We'll keep the child comfortable, but we're going to talk about whether she wants to keep it or not. Folks, where are the hearts of people today? We have a lot of people walking around with, hearts, with, with, with no hearts at all. It's a vacuum. What has happened to this country? I mean, what has happened to this country? What's happened to the world? What is happening around us? Paul is describing this. Without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, in other words, without any control, uh, uh, fierce despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, which means headstrong, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. But notice this, verse 5. Having a form of godliness. <coughs> Take note. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. 
It's not about having a form of godliness, folks. It is about trusting and being godly in this present age. It is about surrendering our lives to Jesus Christ. It is about dying to ourselves and letting Christ live in us as he, uh, as Paul himself had, had stated of his own life when he said in Galatians 2 verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We are to live godly in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope of the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So having a form of godliness is all outward. But he says, but denying the power thereof. The one thing that we cannot do is deny the power of God, the power of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Word of God. We cannot deny these things. Jesus Christ is still on the throne. Wow, that was a weak amen. Do you understand what I'm saying here? We, I was talking with someone about this today. We, in this room, are a minority. We are a minority because we believe the word of God. Because we believe from Genesis to Revelation, every word that is found in these scriptures. We believe them. And we stand for them. We die for them. But that's crazy, isn't it, to some people? But not for us. Because the one that we serve is the one who died for us first. He died for us first. He chose us first. He loved us first. What are we to do? But to love him with the same heart. Having a form of godliness but denying the power from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses... And lead captive silly women laden with sins? You ever seen the view? And other shows of that ilk? Led away with diverse lusts? Here it is. Ever learning. Look at verse 7. Ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Folks, this is what is happening in churches today. People are always learning new things. You ever heard of Christian yoga? It's being practiced in churches today. It makes it sound good when you say Christian yoga. But that's an oxymoron. There's nothing Christian about yoga. Yoga is all really about Hindu philosophy, Hindu religious practices. It is a practice that involves the kundalini spirit. If you know anything about yoga, the kundalini spirit is really a demon spirit that supposedly wraps around people's spine. That's a little crazy. But that's being practiced in the church. Oh, no, we don't do the Hindu part. We just do the yoga part. Sorry, that don't work. Then there are things like uh, people learning about contemplative prayer and, and the use of prayer circles and labyrinths. Whatever happened to praying as Jesus taught us to pray? Whatever happened to praying the scriptures? Because, we, you know, we read the scriptures and say, Lord, that's, that's my heart. That's my heart's prayer to you. 
without all of this meditation and focusing on a word and repeating the word and uh, you know you might as well say um which is Hindu again by the way I think or Buddhist one of those what about Reiki how many of you ever heard of Reiki anybody let me see let me see your hands I want you I really want to okay a few of you have heard about it it's a form of alternative med medicine called energy healing uh, in which a practitioner transfers, and I quote, universal energy through their palms to their subject in order to encourage emotional or physical healing. And this is being practiced in some churches today, you might ask? Unfortunately, yes. And yet they who are learning and practicing such things are never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Why? Because the Bible is not important in those churches. They've put those... They put the Bible aside to pursue these other means by which we might be made more spiritually whole. Hmm. Now, you might ask, what? Oh, by the way, they, they, they who are learning and practicing such things are never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, you might ask, what do these things have to do with the book of Colossians? <laughs> well, let's take two other books written by the Apostle Paul for just a moment. The book of 1 Corinthians and the book of Ephesians. It is in 1 Corinthians that Paul, and I, and I say this very generally speaking, uh, <coughs> excuse me, but it is in 1 Corinthians that Paul emphasizes and reveals the church as the body of Christ in its responsibility here on the earth. Now, Paul begins the letter by commending them for their having received the Spirit of God and, and, and all, but he immediately deals with their factions. He immediately deals with the way that they were dividing up the church. Then later on, he deals with their abuses and misuses of the gifts of the Spirit, uh, and especially of the table of communion. And, uh, and so, you know, he, he's saying, listen, what you need to come to grips with is the fact that you need to be responsible here on this earth with the things that God has given you. So it is the, the, the witness that you're giving. The church is seeing all of these factions. The world, the, the world is seeing these things happen, and you're not giving a good testimony of Christ. Now in Ephesians, in the book of Ephesians, Paul writes emphatically about the church being revealed as the body of Christ in its heavenly aspect. Which means, for example, let's read Ephesians 1 verses 3 and 4 which says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. So we realize that what we've been blessed with is something that comes directly from heaven itself, comes from God himself, comes from the throne of God himself to us. And we bear these things as testimonies and witness of a heavenly father, of a heavenly God, of a God that we are connected to by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on and says, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, which of course was in heaven, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So even our love for one another has to be something that is, that is based from heaven. So Ephesians then emphasizes the body of believers as united to a risen Christ who now sits at the right hand of the Father by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 
and that is we are united to a risen Christ by the indwelling of the Spirit, and we are united with Christ who sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Now, Colossians, on the other hand, has to do with Jesus Christ as the head of the body. And he seeks to fix the heart of every believer upon Jesus as risen and glorified, not to be known any longer in the flesh, but in resurrection, the head of a new and living way. The head, if you will, the, uh, the head of a new order, as it were. That is the church. Before there were Gentiles and Jews. Those were the only two distinctions. You were either a Jew or a Gentile. But now there's a third order, as it were, and that is the church. So this is what he's saying in Colossians. <coughs> that if that believers are responsible to make Jesus apparent and visible or manifest in this world by holding up the head. Now that's a phrase that we'll get to in just a moment. It's in, it's in Colossians. Holding up the head, as it were, here in this world. And I'll explain the phrase in just a moment. And so it can be said that the headship of Christ is the theme of this epistle of Paul to the Colossians. The headship of Christ. Paul does mention Christ being the head of the church in the book of Ephesians. Refers to it somewhat in the book of Colossians and other, other places. But primarily this is the theme of this letter. So one of the great weapons then that the enemy of our souls and of the church would use to weaken the body of Christ, and by the way, I hope you know that the enemy of our souls is, is, is Satan, and, and he's also known as the devil, the accuser of the brethren. And I say that to you because I want you to understand that uh, uh, we believe that there is a, a devil. We believe that there is a person named Satan. Uh, he's called the dragon in the book of Revelation, but uh, we believe that. A lot of the church doesn't believe this anymore. As a matter of fact, a lot of people in the church, in certain churches across the country today, and probably around the world as well, don't believe that there is hell any longer. There's, there's no hell. It's like you could just erase hell because somebody wrote a book about it. Of course, they can't substantiate it from the scriptures because Jesus talked about hell more than he talked about heaven. Because he doesn't want anybody to go there. You all understand that? Okay, so... I'm just trying to get, make sure that you're here. Are you all here? Yeah, okay, praise the Lord. I'm, just, I'm looking at you. I'm not, I'm not saying anything weird, I don't think. Not yet, pretty soon. But anyway, one of the great weapons that the enemy, that the enemy uses against our souls and against the church uh, it would be to weaken the body of Christ by mixing of various ideas, philosophies, mysticisms to weave into Christianity to form new systems that they could cunningly link with the name of Christ. So New Age movements today talk about the Christ spirit, you see. Or you could go into non-Christian cults like the Mormon church. The Mormon church, by the way, is called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So there you see the name Jesus prominently displayed in their name. But the but the Jesus of the Mormon church is not the Jesus of the Bible. Now, we've made that clear in a lot of teachings over the many years that we've been here. 
But the point has to be that these non-Christian cults connect to Jesus some way, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. They believe in a Jesus who's not God, but a little God. And yet that's a contradiction to their own theology that says there's only one God. So how can you call him God? Even little God. See, so there's always this connection. We want Jesus' name to be there, but we don't really want to believe in Jesus. You see where we're going with this? So there are things like, which we're going to touch upon as we go through Colossians, Jewish legalism. Not everything Jewish is bad, of course. But legalism is. Because it would negate then the work of Christ on the cross. So there's Jewish legalism, there's a Greek philosophy, and even Eastern mysticism. All of those three things were involved in the cults of the time that were, that were uh, threatening the power of the church, the true church of Jesus Christ in Paul's day. Altogether, Jewish legalism, Greek philosophy, Eastern mysticism, altogether, these systems, so to speak, were known generally as Gnosticism. Gnosticism. G-N-O-S-T-I-C-I-S-M. Should be up behind me, right? Gnosticism. This is really important because this is one of the key sub-themes to the book of Colossians. Now, Gnosticism, by the way, Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis or gnosis, uh, which just simply means knowledge. And uh, Gnosticism, at least in pretense, in other words, you know what they try to get people to, to believe, Gnosticism, at least in pretense, is the very opposite <coughs> of what Thomas Henry Huxley coined as agnosticism back in the late 19th century. The view, at least in the religious sense, that the existence of God or of the divine or of the sp- supernatural is unknown and unknowable. That's agnosticism. I'm sure most of you have heard about agnosticism or people that are calling themselves agnostics. Uh, The agnostic says, again, the the A before gnostic, A agnostic just means in the Greek language, no. No knowledge. No knowledge. So the agnostic says God is unknowable and the mystery of the universe is unsolvable. There may or may not be a personal God behind all that we see in the universe. Matter may or may not be eternal. I just don't know. That's what the Gnostic says. I just don't know. Now, the agnostic takes it for granted that because he doesn't know, neither does anyone else. That means, well, if I don't know, then you don't know either. Hmm. Most, if not all, agnostics (laughs) refuse and reject the divine revelation given to us in the Holy Scriptures. I hope you know that. I hope you know that the Word of God gives us the wisdom that we need to understand what Christ Jesus has done for us and what he's doing for us today because he's alive and sitting at the right hand of the Father. We get to know that. There's still a lot of things we may not know yet know fully, but we're learning and we're growing. That's knowledge that God wants us to have of his son. 
But the agnostic is content to live his life as an ignoramus. That's the Latin word that's equal to agnostic. It is. It's a real word, ignoramus. I don't want to be called that. I don't want any of you to be called that. Because we are called to know Jesus Christ. But the, but the Gnostic, now getting back to, you know, take the A out. Now the Gnostic, the ones causing problems in Paul's time in the church. The Gnostic is the one that says, oh, I do know. I do know. In the time of the Apostle Paul, the Gnostic was one who professed a fuller, superior knowledge of the mysteries of life and death and even of heavenly beings than the scriptures themselves. In other words, we know a lot more than the Bible has to offer. The Gnostic added to and perverted the revelation of scripture by mixing it with Eastern mystical dreams and visions along with human reasoning. In effect, the Gnostic considered himself superior to all religions and philosophies by taking from all systems to make a new system. May, may I say that whether agnostic or Gnostic, both of which the Church of Jesus Christ faces today, they are satanic in origin. Both agnosticism and Gnosticism are satanic in origin. In, or, uh, in origin. Because it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. If you said 3, you get an A plus and a gold star. And I'll put it on your forehead as you go out today. Genesis chapter 3. Where the serpent, who was the devil, tempted Eve. Where he questioned God. Where he said, did God really say what he said about the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Did he really say that? God didn't really say that. He just didn't want you to become like him. You see, what we call the New Age movement today is a really old lie because it began right there. That's where... Gnosticism began. You can be like God and you can know just like him. That's what he doesn't want. He doesn't want competition. And they took a bite of the fruit. And in that very moment they died. They died spiritually. Eventually they would die physically. Because it's appealing. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. What would be the pride of life? To know like God. To be like God. To be able to say to everyone, I know more than you do. So agnosticism and Gnosticism are satanic in origin, organized and planned by the enemy himself for one purpose. One purpose. And that is to dim or to really hide the glory of the head of the body of the church. To hide the glory of the head. 
the brightness of the glory of Christ, to hide it all. To say that it isn't important, it, is, it doesn't matter, because you can be God. It is to hide the shining face of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I want to get into some of the preliminary facts concerning the, apostle, the epistle of Paul to the Colossians, because it is clear from the very first verse of the, of the first chapter, chapter 1, verse 1, that, that the author of the epistle was Paul, and we know this because that's the first word we see, his name, Paul. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now here's the problem. This was the standard greeting and letters that were sent to others, but you have to identify yourself because certainly there were other Pauls. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother. Oh, I think I know which Paul this is. This is the Paul that uh, has as a son in the faith a man named Timothy. So while his authorship is disputed by some commentators, the majority still hold to the fact that Paul, who was formerly Saul of Tarsus, that he was indeed the author of this letter. But the strongest argument for this can be seen in the similarities found between the letters to the Colossians, to, the, uh, to, a, to a singular person named Philemon, and to the uh, book of Ephesians. Those three letters, by the way, are, are very close in, in, in certain things that help us to realize that Paul, in fact, did write the letter to the Colossians. There's no doubt that the short one-chapter letter to the person named Philemon was written by Paul, but there are good reasons why Colossians was written by Paul as well. And one good reason is that Timothy, Paul's son in the faith, was his companion in both letters. Colossians 1 verse 1 again, <coughs> Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother. And then in Philemon which is one chapter long, but it's verse 1, says, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother. Unto Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow laborer. Philemon knew Timothy, and he knew Paul. So this was the connection that we know that if the, the, these names are mentioned, then it has to be uh, Paul who's writing this letter. Second, Paul's companions mentioned in Philemon were also present at the writings of, or, or the writing of Colossians. Uh, we're not going to go... To find them, there's a, you know, various places. But uh, there's Epaphras, there's Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke. They're mentioned in both of these letters by Paul. Thirdly, uh, Paul was in prison when he wrote both letters. In fact, as we already read in Philemon 1, what Paul wrote, uh, which he said, uh, a prisoner of, G of, of Christ, uh, and then what Paul wrote in Colossians 4, verse 18, which is at the end of the letter, he says, remember my bonds. Remember my bonds. So fourthly, Paul sent a message to the same man in both letters. The, recept the one who receives the letters is a man named Archippus. We see that in Colossians 4 verse 17 and Philemon verse 2. So both letters being written uh, to the same person. One was to go to Philemon. The other was to go to all the churches. And then fifthly, Paul had Onesimus traveled with Tychicus and taking the letter to the church of Colossae. Onesimus, by the way, was the slave and the subject of the letter to Philemon. Philemon was a rich man who actually had had a slave named Onesimus, who Paul led to Christ. And Onesimus came to the Lord, and obviously he had done something 
terrible to Philemon and Philemon hadn't forgiven him and Paul is writing to Philemon to say, listen, Onesimus is now a believer, which means Onesimus is your brother. He's your brother, and so you need to forgive him and now receive him as well. So it's a beautiful little letter, you know, a very personal letter. But Onesimus was the slave in the subject of that letter. So uh, all of those things tie us to the understanding that it was indeed the Apostle Paul who wrote the letter to the Colossians. Now, the date of the writing of the letter to the Colossians is uncertain, but was probably written sometime between 60 and 63 AD uh, during Paul's imprisonment in Rome. So with that in mind, it shouldn't be hard to, to figure that if it was from prison, they would have probably been during that time. The purpose of the epistle is already stated to some degree was to combat an extremely dangerous and threatening heresy that was arising in the church in Colossae and possibly spreading to other churches. I'll talk more about Colossae next week as we're coming back, you know, really, you know, get started on, on the letter uh, next time. But the essential basis, <coughs> the essential basis of the various forms of Gnosticism that was creeping into the churches was the denial of the true transcendent creator God of the universe. It was the denial of the true God of the universe, the true creator God of the universe. In other words, they're denying that Jesus was the creator. And then they deny the transcendent creator God of the universe. They denied that God was above his creation. That's what transcendent means. He's transcending his creation. He's above all of his creation. He's not in his creation. There are those who would say that, uh, you know, God is in everything. He's in the trees and the flowers and in the rocks and in this and that. He's in the chairs you're sitting on and, and the, you know, the clothes you're wearing. He's, God is in everything. It's kind of a weird philosophy. Well, 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 we'll see how weird it is later when we talk about it. But that's what they think, you know, that, that you know, there's this uh, pantheism, you know, God in things, or panentheism, God in all things, you know. So we'll talk more about those things. But uh, they're denying Jesus as the true creator and transcendent over and above all of his creation. So this is the reason why we have this great Christological passage in, in all of Scripture right here in Colossians. Christological means it is a focus of completely and entirely upon Jesus Christ. Our whole study is on the very fact that Jesus Christ is who he said he was and is who he says he is. And here in Colossians 1, verses 16 through 20, Paul says, For by him, speaking of Jesus, were all things created. That's pretty clear. As a matter of fact, John, in his gospel, began that very same way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he goes on to talk about the fact that all things were created by him and for him. And in him all things consist. Well, that's what he, that's what, uh, in essence, that's what Paul says here, as we'll see in just a moment. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Jesus created all these things. All things are created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist all things are held together by Jesus now that's power right that's the power we were talking about earlier that some people are denying today so then look at verse 18 and he is the head of the body of the church 
He is the head. That's the theme of this letter. Jesus is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. If you were here around Christmas time, I, I did a, a study on this particular passage of Jesus being the firstborn uh, from the dead. Not that he was born like we were born, in the sense that uh, you know he was a firstborn of creation, as if to say that he was a created being, because that is not what Paul is meaning here. And of course, we'll get to it when, uh, when we get back to this passage, but all the, all the more to understand the next phrase is that in all things he might have the preeminence. <clears throat> he is the prototype, in other words. That's what firstborn means. And then in verse 19, for it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in heaven or things, uh, things in earth or things in heaven. So this singular passage sets forth our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as creator. There's no doubt that Paul is saying that he is the creator. There's no doubt that uh, Paul is saying that Jesus is the sustainer of life or the sustainer. And that he is also the reconciler of all things. So he is the creator, the sustainer, and the reconciler of all things in heaven and earth. And it's interesting that the Gnosticism that plagued the early church stressed things like astrology, philosophy, enlightenment, soul over body, which is a kind of an interesting thing. The soul over the body. The body is, you know, is material, it's matter, and, and, and it's really corrupt. Well, we knew that going in, that all of our flesh is corrupt, right? <coughs> the fact of the matter is, when you think about these philosophies that say, you know, that the soul is over the body, they are so incomplete in what God has said about us. Because at the fall, man died spiritually therefore we are all dead spiritually until we come to know Jesus Christ and in coming to know Christ we become alive again spiritually Paul mentions the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit in the book of Hebrews chapter 4 so the soul is that area where we have our our, our, our mental and understanding our capacities uh, that's not good enough on this earth. Like these religions or these philosophies were saying. Because it was empty without the spiritual part. But once we became alive again in the spirit, read Ephesians chapter 2. He's made us alive by Christ. and you know, uh, uh, We're saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So... The fact is that, that that is what these religions are pushing or, or religious philosophies are pushing today, the New Age movement, soul over body. But it's not enough, you see, from the standpoint of the scriptures. We have to be alive spiritually. And that's what connects us to Jesus Christ. But they also do something else. They encourage ritual and tradition, not unlike the emerging church and the emergent church of today. <laughs> and of course, there are those uh, liturgies or liturgical churches or ecumenical churches, you know, that, that uh, you know, consider that it's so important to follow certain rites, ceremonies, rituals uh, to, you know, to feel 
that you are accomplishing something spiritually before God. But the scriptures never teach that. It never teaches that. As, as we'll see in just a moment here in, in, in a passage from, from uh, Colossians. It, it also stressed other mediators between God and man. For example, spirits and angels. The Gnosticism of Paul's time emphasized a lot of angelic uh, uh, activity, a lot of spiritual activity. Well, what are those? Those are fallen angels. Those are, those are uh, demon spirits. That's what's being involved in some of the theosophies, uh, the, uh, theosophical <coughs> philosophies of today. Go, they, they go all the way back for 100 to 100 years that have been polluting the church of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Folks, the Bible says one thing. It says that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That's it. One mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. So, you know, there's, there's nobody else. And not even, you know, we're going to talk about saints next week because of verse 2. To, to the saints and faithful brethren. The saints are not praying for us. If we understand the word of God right, saints do not pray for us. So, understand this. We've got to get back to the word of God to understand that some of these things are distractions and not what keeps us focused on the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ and his word. And while it stressed spiritual humility, and you know a lot of these cults stress today spiritual humility, self-denial. You know, they don't want to wear the clothes of the world, so they wear their own kind of thing, you know. I mean, this is seen throughout the world. We think, well, that's pretty, well, that's, that's really humble. I mean, you know, you might want to commend them for this, but these things would only lead to a greater spiritual pride. It would only lead to snobbishness or snobbery and eventually false humility. And you say, really, how, could you, how, how do you know that? Very simply, you go to Matthew chapter 23 and you listen to what Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees. He says, you, uh, he says what one to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites? What one to you? On the outside, I'm paraphrasing here, but on the outside, you, you know, you, 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 you dress a certain way, you, you have your, your, your phylacteries, your the little boxes on your hands and arms and your head uh, with, with, that has the word of God in it, and you, and, you, and you look really great, you know, and the people commend you, they, 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 they praise you for, for your piety, your, your, your piousness, as it were. He says, but you're dead, you're full of dead men's bones. You're a whitewashed tomb. That's what those things lead to. I mean, all of these things that we've mentioned, all the way from astrology, philosophy, and all of that, unto these issues of self-denial, all of that is mentioned in the book of Colossians. For example, Colossians 2, verse 8. It says, be wordless, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. After the tradition of men, notice, after the rudiments of the world. What are the rudiments of the world? Well, the rudiments of the world were elementary signs and spirits, which ties us all back to astrology, actually, and to other uh, uh, pagan practices. And not after Christ, as it goes on to say. 
A few verses later, Paul would then ask this question in verse 20. Wherefore, if you be dead with Christ, if you are actually dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, from all of these elementary things that the world does, why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances? Why are you putting yourself in a position where you touch, uh, touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the, after the using, or with the using, after the commandments of, and doctrines of men? In other words, you have put aside the freedom that we've been given in Jesus Christ to do all these things as, all these, as if all of these things that you're going to do extra are, are going to be notches on your belt of some sort. And then he goes on and says, which things have indeed a show of wisdom. Yeah, there's a, there's a little bit of a show of wisdom here in will worship, which is an interesting phrase because will worship literally means self-made or self-imposed religion. There's a lot of people even in the church today that are, are making up uh, things as they go. I've actually talked with people, maybe you have as well, talked to people that, that have said, well, you know, I, I worship God my own way. Well, I don't want to stand next to you when the cloud comes. Because we're not supposed to worship God our own way. We're to worship God the way he wants to be worshipped. We're to worship God as the word of God teaches us to worship him. Where do we get into this? Well, I don't go to church because, you know, the church is made up of a bunch of hypocrites. Well, hey, one more is not going to hurt. We're all sinners. Have you, have you found that out? We're all sinners. But some of us are saved by grace through faith. And that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The only thing I've got to boast in is the cross of Jesus Christ, because that's where I needed to be. That's where I needed to be. And then notice the next word, humility. And humility. There's a show of wisdom and will worship and humility. And the neglecting of the body. <coughs> but notice this. Not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Let, let me just clarify what that means. It means, in other words, there's no value in curbing fleshly indulgences. As if you think that by the curbing of those indulgences, you're going to be you know, more spiritual than other people. If you go before this passage in verse 16, just go back up a little bit to verse 16. It says, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days. Oh, you know what that is? Jewish legalism. Jewish legalism. Because if you hold to these things, you're negating, the, you're, you're negating the work of Jesus Christ on the cross that came to set us free from the power of sin and death. The things that have held us. Jesus didn't come to destroy the law. He came to fulfill it. Well, that's how he fulfilled it. He destroys sin and death on the cross for us. So he says, don't let anybody judge you in, that, in those respects with these legalism or legalistic things. And by the way, he defines it. He says, which are a shadow of things to come. All of that 
that the, the Jewish people were given from the very beginning, the sacrificial system, and all of that was pointing to Jesus Christ. And once Jesus Christ came, he fulfilled it. So he says, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Let no man beguile you of your reward in, in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head. There's that phrase I told you about earlier. Not holding the head from which all the body <coughs> by joints and bands have nourishment ministered and knit together increaseth with the increase of God. Not holding the head. What does that mean? Well, the word holding uh, in the Greek is the word krateo. It comes from the word kratos. And it means to lay hold or to seize the power, the vigor, the strength, and the might of something. Hold, lay hold of the power of God, the power of his word, the vigor, the strength, the might of Jesus Christ. Holding the head, laying hold of it, taking for it, seizing it for who he is and what he is. He's not what all of these cults are saying he is. They've sought to diminish the power of Jesus, the power of his blood, the power of his work, the power of the cross, the power of his death, the power of his resurrection, the power of his fellowship, of, of his sufferings. He, they've sought to diminish all of that. We are to lay hold and seize the very power of God in Christ. That's what that means. That is holding the head above all things. Later we'll get into the specifics of the Gnostic philosophies that were beginning to cause problems within the body of Christ in Paul's time and are now well sophisticated in our day. But for now, let's, let's just look at the first two verses of chapter uh, 1, verses one, uh, verses 1 and 2. Uh, I'm not going to go, you know, this, this is going to take, we're going to come back to this next week. Actually, we start the study next week. Uh, this is just introduction. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae, uh, grace be unto you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, no one could ever pack so much in just a couple of verses as the apostle Paul does in these two verses, and certainly one of the proofs of the inspiration of Scripture. What, what Paul is essentially saying in verse 1, look at, look at it again, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. What Paul is saying in that phrase is that life truly has but one profession. Life has but one profession. It is the will of God. <coughs> that is to be for Paul as it is to be for you as it is to be for me. There is only one profession. I Paul says, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ by God's will. Not by my own, by God's will. He stresses two things. First, what the apostle did was by the will of God. In other words, his profession and his work was exactly what God wanted him to do. In effect, as a believer in Jesus Christ, he didn't want to choose his life's work. As if to say, well, Lord, you know, if I choose my life's work... I could, I could actually end up making a lot of mistakes. Now we all make mistakes, don't we? 
especially when we get into a new kind of uh, job or work or situation. We will, we'll, granted, if we have a good if we have a good boss or a good leader, they'll they'll let us make our few mistakes at the beginning so that we can learn how things are supposed to be. But none of us want to make mistakes, especially if we serve the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's something even deeper. Paul didn't want to waste his life by doing things that God didn't want him to do. He didn't want to waste his life or to be reckoned a failure by God because of his own choosing of what he wanted to do. That's the reason why we need to pray every time a a new challenge is laid before us, whether it be for a new career or another career or something else that we we might think that the Lord is calling us to do, maybe it it pertains to ministry, whatever it may be. We don't want to take these things lightly. We don't want to enter into them without really praying, without really trusting, without really seeking the face of God. Well, actually, Paul never would do that. There was only one profession for him. It was the calling that God wanted him to do because only God's will for his life mattered. Folks, take that home with you. Only God's will for our lives matter. Only God's will. Remember that in John 15, verse 16, before Jesus went to the cross, he said to his disciples that night, he said, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you, or that he may give it you. You haven't chosen me. I chose you. And if God chooses us, then he knows exactly what he wants us to do. And for the most part, we are all today where God wants us to be. Not one of you in this room is here by accident. You're here because God wanted you here. Not because of me. No, because of him. Because of him. What we leave with I hope and pray, is from him to you. In Hebrews 13, verse 21, Paul says that God would make you perfect in every good will to do his will. Uh, Make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The profession chosen by the Lord for Paul was that of being a a minister, but more specifically, of being an apostle. Apostolos in the Greek is a word that means a person who is especially sent to go among men as an ambassador or a messenger, one that is sent by God, uh, the messenger of God. And, And by the way, listen carefully. A messenger sent of God or a messenger of God with no rights to proclaim his own message or thoughts. No rights to proclaim his own message or thoughts, nor the message of, or thoughts of others. I think we've been duped a little bit in, in, in the 20th and 21st centuries, where we've uh, been given really this, this whole uh, you know, Christian public, uh, you know, publisher, Christian publishing ministry type thing, where all kinds of books are published, all kinds of books are out there. Uh, they're 
sets of books and you know we're, we're moved to go buy this book or that book and quote from this author or that author. We got to check those things out just as much as we have to check out a message from the, from the pulpit. But I can tell you this, some people are being deceived by things that are being written and buying books for even Christian bookstores without checking things out. And then they go around and say, well, so-and-so said this, or pastor so-and-so said that. Yeah, but do you see it in, the God, in, in God's word? Is it, is it in the word of God? This is why we do what we do week in and week out. From Genesis to Revelation, we study the word of God because that is the truth. So Paul <coughs> would write of this calling in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 and 2, and he says, Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. What I say to you today is the same thing. I have to stand before God. I have to stand before God for what I'm telling you today. And yeah, there'll be people that are... are, are, are uh, Offended by things that I've said. I know in, in the first service, I, I decided I didn't want to, well, I didn't decide. You know, I think God just said, hey, you know. Ooh. But I think it needed to be said. Something I said. I'm going to say it to you. But I don't think it needs to be said here. But it was just something that needed to be said. And I know that it would offend some people. But see, at that point, I don't care. Because I have to be faithful to what God says is in his word. Okay, so commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. I stand before him. I don't stand before you. I stand before him. But I want you to listen. And I want you also to judge. This is being a good Berean, being a one who listens and makes sure that what we're saying is right out of the word of God. Ephesians 3 verse 7, Paul says, Whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God, given unto me by the effectual working of his power. See, it, it comes from the Lord. We don't make ourselves ministers. How God does that, you know, going into the 20th, 21st century, because I do come from that ancient 20, 20th century, I hate to say, where there were no cell phones and, you know, all of those things in life. But it's according to his power. I'm not going to argue with it because I don't want to argue with him. Why? He's God and I'm not. So as the life of a believer has but one profession, which is the will of God, so life has but one essential relationship. That is on the earth. Not the, not, I'm not dealing with the relationship we're to have with our father. That's a very special one. I'm talking about the relationship that Paul mentions in verse one. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timotheus, our brother. It is brotherhood. The apostle mentions Timothy, a young disciple of his who had joined Paul to learn all he could about the ministry and to serve alongside his mentor. But, to t but take note that the relationship mentioned by Paul was not that of a student or, to, or a disciple. It was not even that of a fellow minister or preacher. He doesn't say in Timothy, our, our, our fellow preacher or our, you know, our, 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 our student. No, he says our brother, our brother in Christ. 
Notice that Paul also calls the Colossians brothers in verse 2. Faithful brethren. And of course we're going to come back to that next time. But let me read it to you. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a very standard <coughs> greeting by Paul in many of his letters, but it's rich in meaning and understanding. So it is here where we'd like to begin next time, simply because there's so much to say about saints and faithful brethren, and we'll talk about that next time. But as for being brethren in Christ, let me conclude by adding these verses of Paul. Please listen to these, because we need to start establishing the kind of brotherhood that God wants us to have in the church certainly has to be based upon truth. But listen to what Paul says. He says, so we being many are one body in Christ and every one members one of another. We are to serve and support each other. We're to pray for one another. We're to love one another. Verse 10, be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love in honor preferring one another. <coughs> and lastly, Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 9 and 10, but as Touching brotherly love, you need not that I write unto you, for you yourselves are taught of God to love one another. That is one of the, the most precious statements that Paul has ever made. He says, you, you don't have need for, for us to write unto you about brotherly love because you yourselves are taught of God to love one another. The crux of the matter is, are you learning from God to love one another? And then verse 10 says, and indeed you do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia, but we beseech you, brethren, that you increase more and more. Don't let your love go stale. Continue to love as you grow in Christ. Continue to let your love be built up in maturity and in trust and in faith in Jesus Christ. So, brotherly love. Important. Because we need strength to deal with all of the attacks of the enemy together. If we are by ourselves, we could be duped, we could become bitter, or we can leave completely the place of safety that is in Christ.